The greatest gift of all. What is the greatest gift of all? Yes, we know that the greatest gift of all, I mean, you could, you, could, uh, you could say a number of things about what I know you're all thinking, and of course it's Jesus, and that is true, but I want to encourage you today as we look at, hopefully, the gospel message is the most important message that you will ever hear, and I never grow tired of hearing it. And especially on a day like today when many churches across our country are filled with people and not everybody who comes to church this morning are gonna, you know, knows Jesus personally and intimately. But this message this morning is important because you need to know that the greatest gift that God has ever given is his son on behalf of us. And we're going to look at that in detail this morning. And, but I also want to encourage you that the, not only is the greatest gift of all Jesus to fallen humanity, which we all are, that's why we need to be saved, but the greatest gift that we can give is our life to Christ. He doesn't want your money, although that's necessary to run a building and everything like that. You know, as we tithe and we do all these things, that's... That's good and and necessary. However, the thing that God really wants is you. He wants your heart. And so as we celebrate Christmas, you know, we have certain family traditions. And I know there are certain elements and traditions of Christmas that we all share in common. One that I really like, and I would encourage you to foster even this season, is to spend some time reading the first couple of chapters of Matthew and Luke together with your family. Before you even open up all of your presents, you know, just read those passages and put everything in context of why we're here, why we're doing what we're doing. That's one great tradition if you don't have. It's one that's good to start. But many of us have other traditions, putting up and decorating the Christmas tree while listening to Christmas music. We like to do that in our family. Hanging stockings on the mantle. Making cookies and decorating them together and Drinking hot chocolate while you watch your favorite Christmas movies. And some families, like mine, before Kathy and I met, my family, the Kellogg family, before I met Kathy, um, we would open our presents on Christmas Eve. And you'd think that it was because the kids wanted to open the presents, but it was my mother. My mother was the one who instigated this whole plot, and and now our family has been doing it for ages now, and it's all because of my mother wanting to open gifts now because she couldn't take it any longer. (laughs) And that's the truth. However, in our family now, with Kathy and Ari, we open everything on, well, today we're going to, we're going to, because we're, oh, I don't know if I told you, we're getting on a plane and going to Florida for two weeks. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, don't, don't do that. I know you don't mean it. Uh. (laughs) <laughs> no, but we, we're going to open our presents tonight, but normally we do it on Christmas morning. And, you know, and others, other families, they, they, they do it on Christmas morning under pain of death, right? And then there are other traditions that are uh, quirky little Christmas traditions that are unique to families, uh, you know, and like when Aunt Betsy every year wears her stuffed reindeer antlers on her head all throughout the day and then has Christmas dinner with the antlers still on. And other people like Uncle Bob who, you know, likes to uh, put on his swim trunks and jump in the frozen lake 
behind the house just to prove that he still has it, yet no one in the family knows that he had anything to begin with. (laughs) Some people have these quirky traditions, but, you know, we exchange gifts with one another. We have dinners, we relax, we reminisce, we laugh, we enjoy fun food together, we watch football, and if Dallas is playing, you're all praying for Dallas, right? Dallas Cowboys. But the reality is, is some of us enjoy those kinds of things, but there are others that don't. Some are very lonely, and some are going through a lot of pain because of broken relationships. And that is the truth, isn't it? And if you're one of those people today, amidst all the joy all around you, I want you to know that Jesus loves you, and that you are valued to him. You have a value, and you have a value to Christ and to us as a church, and we love you, and we're glad you're here. I want to share a message with you this morning that I've been wanting to do for about five years now, and it's about giving. Now, this is not going to be what you think it is, (laughs) because unfortunately, isn't it true that our culture has become very selfish, especially at Christmas time? And for some, it's all about getting what, and, and people are, can be so fixated and consumed about what they're going to get rather than what or how they're going to give. And it's important as parents and grandparents for us to model this joy of giving with our children the best we can so that they can model it for their children in the hope that we can develop this godly character in them. And just for the record, there's nothing wrong with, get, with, uh, with receiving gifts. Because after all, if in order for someone to receive a gift, somebody else had to give it, Right? And think about this, and in order for someone to give, someone else has to receive. And I believe the secret to this whole thing, this whole idea in giving and receiving, is just to give and receive graciously without putting on a false air about only being one who gives. I remember one uh, person that I've known, or have known for over the years, and, and, and they're, they're, they don't want to receive anything. And, and I, I get it, but it gets a little weird when you, you, know, you try to give them something, and they're like, no, I can't receive. You know, I can only give. And, and, and what does that really do? That robs the person who's giving of a blessing, right? And so we don't want to do that. You know, I think as we mature as Christians, it's important that we are gracious in receiving and gracious in giving. And and everybody gets blessed because it's a reciprocal thing, isn't it? So getting Christmas gifts, you know, that's exciting, especially for kids. But in all the excitement and everything, let's encourage and teach the giving as well. Right? Because as Christians, we're not to be covetous, but rather giving, loving, Showing kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things that Paul gave us in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. These are the kind of things. And although it's not mentioned explicitly in the Gospels, Paul, the apostle in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, tells us that Jesus said this statement. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And we know this to be true because Jesus said it. And Paul said that Jesus said it, so therefore it settles it for me. But also, we know the sacrifice and other-centeredness, that was something that Jesus not only modeled for us, but he taught it as well, right? Turn with me to John chapter 3. We're going to look at a verse today that we're all very familiar with. John 3.16 
John 3, 16 and 17. So often we quote, quote uh, chapter 16 and we don't quote chapter or verse 17. Notice what it says. For God so loved the world. So God the Father so loved the world, and not the world and all of its systems, but the people in the world. And I think in context we know this. He doesn't love the world because other scriptures tell us that uh, as children of God, we're not to love the world, Right? And it's talking about the world system and the world's attitudes of things. But for God so loved the world, the people in it, notice that he, God the Father, he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him, this gift that God has given, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so let's take a closer look at this, these two verses because who was given? We know who was given. Who was given? Jesus Christ, that's right, the only begotten son of the Father, meaning Jesus. And when it says that God gave his only begotten son, what that literally means is that Jesus died on the cross, and he died in our place. And why did Jesus have to die? Well, that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked. The simple answer is because of sin, right? Jesus died for the sin of mankind. And beginning in the Garden of Eden, man rebelled against the Lord and sinned. And when God formed Adam, he said this to him. He says, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And if you notice in some of your Bibles, there's a little footnote there, and literally what that last phrase means is that in dying you shall die. In other words, physical death will ultimately lead to eternal death. In dying you shall die. And that's exactly what we see in, 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 in our world now. People live, and they live for a certain amount of time, they begin to decay, and then they pass, and then they spend an eternity in either heaven or hell. And hopefully for all of us this morning, hopefully all of us have made that decision to choose Christ. But notice that God created Adam from the dust of the ground, and he gave them this commandment. And after this, God created Eve from Adam by putting Adam to sleep, which is what he really wanted to do anyway. He wanted to sleep and took one of Adam's ribs, forming woman, forming Eve from that rib. And, I, and just, just my personal conviction, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I believe it's the left side because that's where the heart is. And I believe he took that rib and in glory we can ask, which side was it, Lord? And he'll probably say, Rob thinks it's left, but it's really the right side. <laughs> Because it's only right, you see. But he took and he formed Eve, but there was trouble brewing in paradise, in the Garden of Eden. There was trouble brewing because God allowed Adam and Eve to choose whether they would be obedient to God or not. And we today have that same choice, right? Because love is not necessarily a feeling, but it is a commitment. It is an act of the will. It's not just a feeling. So even as we love God, it's not just a, a feeling. And, and praise God when the feelings are there. You know, like on your honeymoon and on your, you know, on your wedding day, you have these really incredible, intense feelings, and it's all good. And as Christians, we can continue having those kind of intense feelings as we go along. But you know what? It's, it's more than just the feeling. It's a commitment. It's an act. 
I choose to do this. And that's exactly what God gave Adam and Eve the choice to do. But in Genesis chapter 3, we hear of something really horrible that had happened. Now, I'm bringing this up because in order for us to understand this gift that God has given to us, all of humanity, we have to understand what this gift was and why did this gift, why did this one have to die? And it's because of sin. In Genesis chapter 3, this is now the serpent, and we know through Revelation 12 verse 9, it tells us who this serpent really is. It's Satan. It's the devil. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, notice he went to the woman first. He didn't go to the man. He didn't go to the head of the home. He went to the weaker vessel. And ladies, don't take offense to that. But he went to Eve first. Eve, and and I think this is uh, true of of, of women. They're, They're different. I don't know if you know this, but men and women are different. And women, they, they have a lot of feelings. Men have very few feelings, and you know this. But, and I, I'm only saying that tongue-in-cheek. But he comes to the woman, and he said to her, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tr- fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the free of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And then the serpent said to the woman, You won't surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman noticed this, and underline this, if you're open to Genesis, if you're there already, notice what he says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and this is the lust of the flesh, and it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. That she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So Eve was deceived by Satan in the Garden of Eden. And both she and Adam chose to disobey God. And this family is when sin entered the world. When sin entered the human race. And so from this point in the garden, until now, until this day, and even afterwards, we were born in sin. We inherited this sin nature from our parents going all the way back to Adam and Eve. In fact, King David was even aware of this in Psalm 51. And he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David even knew that this nature, this nature that's at enmity with God... That he was born with that, and in sin he was conceived. And Romans 3.23 puts a further nail into our pride, doesn't it? It says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we have all sinned, and selfishness and sin was in me as soon as I was born and old enough to crawl. I didn't have an opportunity to learn sin from anybody else, but right from the womb I became selfish. As soon as I was able to walk and grab something, I was holding it and hiding it from everybody else. That's all I knew was selfishness. It was about me and my needs. I didn't have to learn from anybody. It's already built in. And see, this is not a good thing. This makes this gift of Christ even more wonderful. But let's go on. So Romans 5 verse 12 says this. 
He says, therefore, Paul's writing to them, he says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, meaning of Adam, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. And here it is, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. And so, and it says, um, so death and sin spread from humanity from the very beginning, and it's always been going. There's not been a person born who has not had a sin nature. There's only one. And what is his name? Jesus Christ. He was the, is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? There's only one. And God has judged sin. In fact, in Ezekiel, it says, The soul who sins shall surely die. The soul who sins shall surely die. So God has judged it. And this confirms what God had spoken to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, when he said, For in the day that you eat of this tree, Adam, you shall surely die. In dying, you shall die. And isn't it true that God's heart he revealed this in 1 Samuel chapter 15. He said, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed, to listen, and to do uh, than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And so God would much rather have us obey him then come with empty things and put them on the altar, all with the intention of not really changing and willing to turn from things. And so the gift of Christ and his birth is even more important. Just as we sung this morning, he, he was born, he lived to die. You live to die. Rejected and alone, like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and you thought of me, you thought of us above all, Right? So Adam and Eve's consequences for their sin was this break in fellowship with God and their being expelled from this paradise that God had made for them in Eden. And, um, and then we go into Genesis chapter 3 and it says that God also, for Adam and Eve, his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Uh, very interesting. This means that God killed an innocent animal. In the garden, it doesn't say that he explicitly took it, but in order to get the skin of an animal, what has to happen? The animal has to die. It's not like he can just unzip it and say, here you go. That'd be really nice, convenient even, but that's not the way it is. So God, then this is the first place where we see the blood of another was used to cover not only their sin, but the skin of the animal was used to cover their nakedness and their shame. And this is the first place in the Bible we hear of blood being shed for the benefit of somebody else. It's called, and here's a fancy word, substitutionary atonement. A substitute in my place. Because the man who sins shall surely die, Adam and Eve deserve to die, but God allowed a substitute. And we see that all the way back here in Genesis chapter 3. Right In verse 21, the gospel was already being shown to them, and certainly God shared that with them. 
But then when we get into Genesis chapter 22, we see something interesting because God told Abraham to take his only son up onto a mountain of Moriah, which we know now is the Temple Mount today, where the temple used to stand, and it will stand one day. And God told Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, and to go offer him there. Now, Abraham knew that sacrificing a human was a very pagan thing, but God told him to do it, and God, in his mind, already knew what he was going to do because God was going to be showing something that he was going to do several, a few thousand years later after the fact to his own son. It was, a, it was a, a, sort of like a script. It was sort of like something that God was going to do on that very same hill. A few thousand years later, Jesus, the only begotten Son, would be sacrificed, except this time there wouldn't be a ram caught in the thicket. This time, God would follow through and cause his son, the only perfect spotless sacrifice, his son Jesus Christ to take the price. But notice, it says that Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, and this is Genesis 22, verse 7, he says, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And a very profound statement here by Abraham God will provide himself a lamb in the future. And who is that lamb? It's Jesus. And then they came to the place which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. He bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar upon the wood, and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am, thank God. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know. Now, did God know beforehand? He did. But until Abraham rose that knife with every intention of going through with it, because God told him to do it, and to me, that's a mind blower, because he'd have to know the voice of God so well that he knew it wasn't some demon speaking to him. Think about that. This same God who called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, modern-day Iraq, um, he called him out. That same God, with the same voice, spoke to Abraham. And he knew that it was God. And he obeyed him. So Abraham went and he saw the, the ram caught in the thicket. And he offered it up for a burnt offering. Notice, instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of this place, The Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided, or it shall be seen and what is going to be seen from Abraham's perspective at his time? What was going to be seen? Well, a few thousand years later, the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, would do the very same thing, but there would be no ram as a substitute. He would be the substitute because Jesus is perfect. And until Jesus died, up until Jesus died on the cross... God had made provision for the Jews to sacrifice a lamb, a goat, a bull in their place as a substitution for their sin, right? But once Jesus died, there's no more need for the sacrificial system for animals, for Jesus died once and for all, and his sacrifice was perfect because he, Jesus, is perfect. It says in Romans 6, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. We sang it this morning, above all and for all. He did it once. But that he lives, he lives to God. And the author of Hebrews 
compares Jesus, our great high priest, to the priests of the Old Testament, what does he say? For such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, was fitting for us who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he, Jesus, did once when he offered up himself. Notice who offered him up? He. God. Jesus. He offered himself. He was no martyr. He offered once. He was no martyr. Jesus said in John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. And as we look back on our wall and I see the the, the sheep and we see the shepherd and, and, and Jesus is the good shepherd. He leads us in the right ways, in the right path. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And notice, I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. And do you know who those sheep are? What fold that is? The Gentiles. He was speaking of, there's a fold of, of the Jews, but now he opened it up to all of us as well, to Jews and Gentiles. And we are from that other fold. And every one of us are beneficiaries. We are in the fold of God. Are you happy? Is he taking care of you? You may not get everything you want. You may, he may not be on time with everything you want to be on time for, but is he providing for you? Is he filling your heart with joy? Even in, even in this crazy culture and world that we're living in, is he still your good shepherd? And it says, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. So as we celebrate Jesus' birth, we need to understand that his birth was for a purpose, and that purpose was that he would die for our sins, for the sin of mankind. He was born to die, just like we sang, crucified, laid behind a stone. You lived to die, rejected and alone, like a rose, trampled on the ground. You took the fall, and you thought of me above all. It was something that God had already had in his mind. Do you understand? Before God even created the heavens and the earth. He already had in his mind to have this one be born into human nature or to, have a, to come into humankind from a place that he had always existed in, pre-existed. And now he comes into the miracle of the virgin birth of Mary and he's born and, 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 and all of this was known by God from eternity past. Because before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Before that, before that, the rescue mission to save man from his sins had already been determined, and Christ was the one who would save us. And this was something that did not take God by surprise, but rather God anticipated it. And how do I know that? Well, it tells us in the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, although it's in a different context, speaking about the Antichrist, but it tells us that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Do you understand the, the, the significance of that? That in God the Father's mind, even before he created the heavens and the earth and everything in the earth, God already knew there had to be a plan because I have to give my, the, the people that I create, I have to give them a choice. And when they fail, 
Because when you're given a choice, unless you're completely obedient 100% of the time. Anybody here never sinned before? Raise your hand if you've never sinned before. I don't see any hands. There shouldn't be any hands because if you raised your hand, you'd be lying. All right? But notice, he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God in his omniscience and his all-knowingness, knowing everything, knew that man would sin and rebel, and he made provision for us in Jesus' birth, his death, and his resurrection that we might not spend eternity in hell separated from God, but rather spend eternity in heaven with God. There's only two places the Scripture talks about. There's no other middle ground. There's no purgatory. There's no someplace in limbo where if you get enough people praying for you, you'll get, you know, you'll move up higher. It, it doesn't work that way. It's not in the Scriptures anywhere. Jesus never taught that. It's a lie. Now, I'm preaching to the choir for the most part because I know most of you have given your heart to Christ, but I also know that there are people today that you brought that you love. And folks, this is a message the most important message you'll ever hear. And I can say that with all authority in heaven because it's his message. It didn't originate from me. My opinion means nothing unless it's based on the word of God. If it's just my thoughts, it doesn't matter. I, you know, my thoughts are transient. One day I can think one thing, another day I can think another. Ah, but the Bible, the word of God, stands forever. And... Just to take a pause here. <laughs> oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Isn't that awesome to think about what God has done? But think about this. Was Jesus qualified to pay this price? Because that's an important factor in all of this. Of course he was. Jesus is not only the Son of God the Father, but Jesus is God and he's one with the Father. What does it tell us in John's Gospel, chapter 1? We've read this before. In the beginning, in the very beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him, was not what, and without him nothing was made that was made. And then down in verse 14 of that same chapter, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So who is this Word that is spoken of? In the context, we know that it's a He. We know that it's the only begotten Son of God. So it's kind of plain, isn't it? Who is the Word of God? Jesus, and it says that he is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is equal with God the Father. And he came in human flesh. And I love this. In John chapter 10, verse 27, we've read this before. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, notice, he's equating himself with Father, the God the Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. It can't be any clearer than that, folks. Jesus is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Right? 
and in the Old Testament prophesied some 700 years before Jesus was born. What does it tell us? These are the, the, the scriptures on the cards that you all received this week. Isaiah 7, 14, what does it say? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, Ahab. Behold, the virgin, the virgin. It's a, it's a, it's a um, um, what's the word I want? It, it's a, yes, it's a specific, it's not a, it's the. <laughs> so the virgin. And who is that virgin? Mary. Yes. Behold, the virgin, 700 years before even Mary would be born. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Virgins don't bear seed or they don't, they don't, um, it doesn't happen that way. The birds and the bees are different, right? We know how that happens. And she wasn't married. She was a virgin. The miracle of the virgin birth. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. But now we go to Isaiah 9, verse 6, one of our favorite verses. Now pay attention carefully. It says, for unto us a child is born. Okay, Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Okay. His name will be called Counselor. Okay. His name will be called Mighty God. Everlasting Father. This son, this babe who's going to be born, is going to have the title of Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Do you understand equality now with God the Father? Back in 700 years when Isaiah wrote this. Is Jesus qualified to take the price, to pay the price? He, he was born to die. Of the increase, and the prince of peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice and judgment from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Exclamation point. Stamp it. It's done. Isn't that awesome? The Apostle Peter said that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Does that remind you of Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, whatever it was? When God made the tunics by skinning the animal. Now Jesus himself, and, and, and you think about the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. A lamb would have to be sacrificed and the blood of that lamb over the lentil and over the doorposts and everybody inside under the blood would be saved and protected from destruction. Same is true today. The blood of the lamb wants to cover you. Are you going to stay outside and be destroyed or are you going to come inside and be safe? Yeah, we're going to come in. Many of us have and we, we already have, but there's some here that haven't. But know something, that God loves you. He's not upset with you. You know, stop thinking that God is just angry with you and just wants to pound on you. No, it's quite the opposite. He loved you so much that he went through all of this. He gave the greatest gift of all. And there's nothing greater that God knows than that he can give other than God himself. And what did he give? God himself. On the cross. That's pretty profound, wouldn't you think? And so, summing it all up now, because of the sin of man, Jesus paid for the penalty for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, 
to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that wonderful grace? That's wonderful grace. I don't deserve that. I could never deserve it. Does anybody here deserve it? I can't. I don't deserve it. That's why it's grace, right? And all we need to do is believe in who Jesus is and what he did for us, and we can have the assurance of salvation. Romans 10 verse 9 is a really important verse. Paul says to them that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has saved him from the dead, you will be saved. The idea of being saved means to be born again. John, um, or Jesus, excuse me, in John chapter 3, he was speaking to Nicodemus, a very religious man, and you've heard this before, but Jesus um, says, you must be born again, and Nicodemus is like, how can I be born again? Can I enter the second time in my mother's womb? And Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't see it, you can't perceive it. That's literally what the word see means. You you can't even perceive the kingdom of God at work if the Spirit of God is not in you. And In verse 5, he goes and he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We were all born... Of, of our mothers floating around in that little amniotic sack, right? We were born of water, but we need to be born again. And that's what Jesus said when he says, you must be born again. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is what Jesus did. This is what God has done. This is his gift to us. Now, go with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Remember the song that we sang. Many of you didn't know it, but I I heard some of you singing it, so it must be a little more popular than I thought. But what can I give him? That was a song we sang this morning. What can I give him? Give him my heart. And think about all that God has done. Now look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, this would be Herod the great, behold, wise men, the magi, these were astrologers or magicians, probably from Babylon or perhaps from Persia or modern-day Iran. They came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Amazing that these men notice something even in the heavens. doesn't say the heavens proclaim the glory of God. Well, they were astrologers, so they're very familiar with the stars. And they saw one that was very unique, and they're like, This is unheard of. And so they follow that star. And it was so that literally they followed it until it came and rested over the area where Jesus was. And that, to me, can only speak of one thing, probably an angel. Bright in appearance and, 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 and leading these men, right? And it says down in verse 9 of that same chapter that after they had had this interview with Herod, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented him notice. This is the natural result. After all that God has done for us, what do these kings of the east, what do they do? They bring him gifts. 
They bring him gifts. They bring him gold, which speaks of his, his, king, his king nature. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It speaks of frankincense, which I don't even know if these guys really understood the significance and the meaning of the gifts they were giving because frankincense speaks, it's it's an element, it's an uh, an ointment that is inside the, um, uh, the incense that they would use in the temple to offer up sweet incense. And we know that incense is like the prayers of the saints. And who is our intercessor? It's Jesus. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And so they brought this frankincense. And finally, and this is the kicker, (laughs) they bring myrrh. Myrrh was used in embalming, which speaks of his death. Certainly these gifts being prophetic, but they brought gifts to this one. They knew that whoever this one is, is significant more than anything or anyone in the world. Listen to him. So they come from the east, bringing gifts. Now, unfortunately, Christmas has become so commercialized that it's easy for most of us to forget that, what it's really all about. First and foremost, it's about Jesus Christ, isn't it? And because of our old nature, that is selfish and self-centered, and and, and that is my old nature. We can often think about only what we're getting instead of what can I give? What can I give? And really, this is the second part of this whole message. We already looked at what Christ gave and, and why he had to die because of sin. And we looked at the scriptures of that. And we looked at the great things that he has given us. He's given us so much. And Paul, um, as we looked at in the very beginning, he uh, left the Ephesian elders on the beach after saying this. And he says, And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It's more blessed to give than to receive. And if this is the case then what can we give to the Lord who has paid the price for, uh, for our sin by his blood and his death on the cross? What can we give seeing that he has given us the Holy Spirit to indwell us so that we might be born again? What can we give him seeing that he has given us this hope of salvation and the blessed hope of the rapture we know that is coming? What can we give to this great God who has given us this eternal salvation where there are pleasures forevermore, holy pleasures, Good things. What can we give him? What does God need? What does God need? Well, he doesn't really need anything, right? I mean, if he really needed anything, he could create it. See, if I were God, right now I'd be saying, you know, I could really stand for a Philly cheesesteak sandwich <laughs> with, the, with the bun nice and uh, grilled and everything like that and just dripping with mozzarella cheese and the best shaved, you know, roast beef. I could really go for that right now. See, but God, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything. But what he wants. What does he want? Is there anything that would bless God? If you're a believer in Christ, give Jesus your all. Give him the first fruits of your heart. Give him the first fruits of your time, your resources. Give Christ that rightful place. And it goes along with what Jesus spoke in the Beatitudes in Matthew 6, verse 33. He said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things. And if you're wondering what all of these things are, you just have to look at verses 25 through 32. And he defines in those verses, 25 through 32, what things he's speaking of. And it's speaking about the normal sustenance of life, what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear. 
He provides, anybody here void of any of those three things right now? None of us. Right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these other things will be added unto you. He'll make sure you've got your taken care of. But the, this is the greatest gift the Lord would have from you. Is him, is, is, he wants you. He wants you. Acknowledge his glory and give him praise and extol his greatness. Give him praise and thanksgiving. And if you haven't already given your heart and your life to Christ, do so today. Do it today. The disciples did. In Matthew chapter 4, it says that, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he said to them, Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And notice what they did. They said, Forget it. We're not going to do it. We've got to make money and live. <laughs> they immediately left their nets, and they followed him. They gave Christ their very life. They entrusted their life to him. Can you trust Jesus with your life? Now, it doesn't mean that you have to quit your job. It means to serve him. Give him your life right now in whatever you're doing. Allow him to transform you in your workplace, whatever you do, so that you are a light to those around you, and that you let, light, let the life of Christ live through you, if you can do that, if you're a believer, then you're doing really well. And listen to him. Spend time with him. Fellowship with him. Because think about this. Jesus invited a rich young man to follow him, but he refused. But the disciples chose rather to follow Jesus. In Luke 18, it says, A certain ruler asked Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come, follow me. Now, why did Jesus say that? Was he after his money because he was a rich guy? You know, maybe Jesus needed some help. No, he didn't need his money. But he knew what was on the heart of that young man. He knew. It was all about money for this guy. It was all about the money. If there wasn't some way for him to get rich off of something, he wasn't doing it. If, if it was about giving or helping somebody else, forget about it. I'm going to make sure that my portfolio is nice and fat so that when I die, somebody else will inherit it. That's, that's really what happens. You can't take it with you. Now, I'm not here this morning sharing this with you, but, I, but here's, here's the thing. When Jesus saw that he become very sorrowful because the Lord put his finger right on the idol of this man's heart, he didn't want his money. Jesus did not want his money. He wanted the young man. He wanted his life and his heart. Leave your money home. Come and follow me. Right? Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful and he said, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it says, Well, who then can be saved? And he said, these things are impossible with men, but they're possible with God. And then Peter said, see, we have left all and we followed you, Lord. 
And so he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like Matthew 6 that we just looked at? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Isn't that what Jesus is telling them? You're going to receive even more in this life, guys, if you follow me, but in the life afterwards, life everlasting. That sounds too good to be true. Because it is. Because there is no thing like that in the world. There's no offer on the table. Even the big jack, you know, the jackpots, the lotto jackpots, you know, 635 million. After taxes, you get 394 million. What are you going to do with all that? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? But notice that the Lord didn't ask him for his money. He, he said, give it to the poor and then come follow me. So the greatest gift that the rich, man, rich young ruler could have received was a relationship with Jesus and salvation. And notice that the greatest thing the young man could have given back to the Lord was not his money, but his life. And the Apostle Paul knew of this as well. The Apostle Paul was very aware of this idea of giving his life. Because that's what the Lord wants today. He wants you. He loves you. He paid the price for you. You are dear to him. You're very dear to him. I hope you know that. There is no one more dear to the Lord than you. And even the most horrible sinner out in the world that we would look at and say, there's no hope for you. God says, no, I love that person. I don't like what they're doing. They're creating a mess. But I am the great mess cleaner upper. And he can clean the mess. And don't try to clean up your mess and come to Christ. No, come to Christ and he will clean up the mess. You can't do it yourself. Otherwise, you would have. But you can't. So you didn't and you won't. But he wants to do that for you. So come to Christ with your mess, with your sin, with everything. Come to him with open arms. He's got open arms for you, folks. And he wants you. He doesn't want what you can do for him. He doesn't want what you have necessarily. He just wants you. He wants to have fellowship with you. And Paul the Apostle of all people, he had a lot to boast about because he had a great pedigree, but he saw it as nothing compared to the knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, it says that Paul was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is of the law, blameless. It doesn't mean that he was perfect, but when he sinned, he went through the process of um, of, of, of doing, you know, cutting you know, the lamb and sacrificing the lamb. He was very uh, focused on those things. But that didn't get the job done. And, and, and yet he would say, for all of this stuff and what things were gained to me, these things I counted loss for Christ. All of this pedigree, all of this schooling that I had, my intellect was so great. And he was a fantastically, wonderfully intellectual man, a very intelligent man. And he says, I give it all up for this one thing. I give my life, my all, to this one. And believe me, Paul could have run any Fortune 500 company in the world today and done it very well, much better than 
the others. But he said, no, I'm going to follow this one. I'm going to follow this one, the Savior of my soul, the one who loves me perfectly. Do you you know that God loves you perfectly? Even right now, with, with, with your mess, even with your mess, he's smiling upon you today and saying, what are you waiting for, child? What are you waiting for? I've given the invitation. Will you come to me? All I want is you. What can I give him for all that he has given to me? Think about that. An eternity with Christ. What can I give him? How might I bless you, Lord? Just come and give me yourself. Just give me you. That's all I want. And Paul will go on and says, Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. So what about you? What about you this morning? I'm not going to have an altar call or anything like that, okay? So some of you are maybe getting nervous. There's nothing to be nervous about, honestly. Do you realize this exchange that you can make today is in, the, in, the, in, your, in the own, your own volition of your own heart? It's something that can happen in an instant, And perhaps this morning it has. In an instant, you've made the decision to give your heart, your life to Christ. The greatest gift he's given to us and the greatest gift we can give to him is to say, I devote my life to you now, Lord. I give everything to you, my life, my all, as the hymn that we sing. So let's do that today. Give him your life. Give him your all. And for those of you who already know Jesus, continue doing what you're doing. And if there's something that you're holding on to that you're not willing to surrender to him, and what I mean is evil things, areas in your life and in your heart that you know need to go, but you're still holding on to them, let them go. You'll find the greatest freedom when you finally just make the break. Just make a run. Just run away from it. And perhaps there's some here that have never made that choice to pass from death to life. And it's really as simple as just saying, Lord, and and this is how simple it can be, folks. And even in the privacy of your own heart as you're sitting here, if you believe that you're a sinner, which is very easy for me to say, yes, I am a sinner, for you to believe that, and then to believe the things that I've shared with you today about who Jesus is, that he died for you, and the sin nature, it's very real, and that he paid the price for me. He gave me and you, you and I, the greatest gift of salvation himself. All you've got to do is say, Lord, here I am with all of my mess. Will you take me? (laughs) Will you take this mess? And the Lord will say, I'll gladly take your mess. I don't care how wicked you think you are or even how wicked you are. I'm going to wipe away the tears from your eyes. 
And I'm going to give you purpose that you've never had in your life. I'm going to give you something that you can't even comprehend. And see, I've received that gift. And I pray that you have too, or will. And I would encourage you not to wait till tomorrow. Today. If you believe what I just told you, and you believe that in your heart, the Bible says that you will be saved. And I pray that you do. And if you want to pray with somebody, certainly there are many here to pray with you. Or if you just want to go home today and consider these claims, these things, and consider them, do that. There's no pressure. Let the Lord have you. He wants you. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for um, just the truth of your word, Lord. We're, we're thankful of the truth concerning ourselves, even though it's not a pretty picture. Yes, if we could have the worship team come up, we're going to do one final song, actually. Um, and Lord, just have your way with us, Lord, and encourage our hearts just to follow you and to give ourselves completely to you. And we give you thanks and praise, Lord. And I pray that you'd bless my friends, my brothers and my sisters in Christ this morning. Bless them, encourage them, keep them safe. May their times with their families truly be a blessing. And Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you, Lord. And so receive this song of worship to you in Jesus' name. Amen.